that you turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. You know, I am constantly amazed at the meticulous sovereignty of God and how he's demonstrated that uh, to me just this weekend. Um, I was editing my sermon this morning and opened my computer to find that about three pages of my sermon notes had been deleted, and I have no idea where they went. However, uh, God provided well with Justin was able to cover for me and set up, um, and he spoke about that earlier today um, and I have to believe that as we turn to this word that this is the message God has for us to hear from his word and I'm thankful to get to share that with you um, as we look at Galatians 2 verses 1 through 10 and I trust that he will enrich this uh, to you uh, and to and that he will feed you as his flock um, as we're getting prepared for that uh, when I was in college um, my professors used to post everybody's test scores together on a bulletin board outside of the Bible and Theology Department, uh, which was affectionately known as the Wailing Wall. Um, it even had a little sign that said the Wailing Wall. Uh, everyone's scores would be typed up on a couple sheets of paper, depending on how many people were in the class, all together, <clears throat> usually in order of highest grades to lowest grades. And so if you were wanted to go find out how you did on your test, you'd go up, you'd find your student ID number, <clears throat> and then you'd see how your score, you'd see your score and how it compared to everyone else. Now, I've always been a really serious test taker. And while I know that school isn't about getting a certain score or a letter, uh, there's always some, been something about wanting to get that top grade that I have never been able to shake. And so, no matter how confident I felt when I turned my test in to my professor, uh, every time I'd walk up those ridiculously steep stairs to go look at the wailing wall and to see where I, whether or not I passed, uh, my stomach was always in knots. Tests are known for how much anxiety they can cause, but there's no denying that they serve an important purpose. Uh, you don't want a doctor to treat you who couldn't pass their boards. Uh, you don't want to be cared for by a nurse that couldn't pass the NCLEX. You don't want to be represented by a lawyer who couldn't pass the bar exam. Tests are important because they provide an objective measure as to whether or not you're picking up what your professor is putting down. <clears throat> now, I worked really hard. I would go to class religiously. I would read my books. I would study my notes, all because I wanted to pass that test. Tests are uncomfortable because they scrutinize you but they're important because they keep you accountable and they tell you whether or not your efforts have been in vain there's nothing worse than pouring out blood sweat and tears into a project uh, to, to realize that all of your all of your efforts were for naught that they were wasted even maybe they were wasted on the wrong thing that's one thing to do that on a test it's a totally different thing to do that with the gospel so in our passage this morning, uh, we're actually looking at part three of four of Paul's personal testimony of the authenticity of the gospel he preached and the responsibility he had then as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The false teachers that had come into the churches in Galatia were trying to lure believers to adopt a different gospel than the one that the Galatians had first received from Paul. 
they had challenged Paul's authority, and they had argued that he actually preached a watered-down gospel because he was a man-pleaser. They argued that Paul didn't meet the test. Well, to this point in the letter, Paul has argued for the authenticity and for the exclusivity of his gospel, which he preached, by showing that he had received his message and his office supernaturally when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He has proved to this point that he did not receive this gospel or learn it from any other man, but preached it as it truly was and as it remains today, God's message of salvation for the world. He shows that this is God's gospel. He's also showed that he never set out in his ministry to make a name for himself because he rejoiced in the glory of his master, Jesus, over the fame and the recognition of his own name. So now that we're here in chapter 2, the story continues. Paul wants to show that while his ministry and his message uh, didn't come from any man, he wasn't commissioned by the other apostles to do this, still he was in unison with the other apostles, what they believed and what they taught themselves. So in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he shows how the message he preached among the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire held up to the test, to the scrutiny, and the judgment of the other apostles, especially the three important ones, James, Peter, and John, and thus showing that his gospel was authentic and authoritative, unlike the false gospel that was gaining acceptance among the churches there in Galatians. Galatia, to, to whom he is, first wrote this letter. So well, that's what we want to look at this morning. If you would, please join me uh, in standing together as we see and read about what Paul had to say about his experience in Jerusalem to these believers in Galatia. I'll be reading Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what, what they are makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, as we look at the series of events that Paul recounts here in verses 1 through 10, there's a, a prevailing theme here, which really lies at the heart of the gospel that Paul preached. It's a theme of grace. 
Paul preached a gospel of salvation. And it was a gospel of grace throughout the world, which is the same message we see that the other apostles preached there in Jerusalem. His fear of ministry may have been different, but his message was the same message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which leads us to to really see the main idea of our text this morning, which is this. The gospel of God's grace is the standard by which all ministry and obedience is to be judged. The gospel of God's grace is the standard by which all ministry and all obedience is to be judged. Paul's trip to and from Jerusalem breaks into three acts or three phases which emphasize how the gospel of the grace of God stands as a message of authority, as a message of of, of judgment, as a test. These acts will guide us uh, through our passage as we see the significance of the gospel of Jesus as it as it works as our authority. So the three points that I have for you, if you have those, those notes there, have to do with what Paul did, and, and we'll draw applications out of each one of those points uh, as we make our way through this passage. So Paul first submitted to scrutiny. Paul submitted to scrutiny. Second, Paul stood his ground. He stood his ground. And third, Paul was sent out to continue the work. That breaks into three points, submitted to scrutiny, stood his ground, and then was sent out to continue the work. So we want to begin first by looking at the way Paul submitted himself to the scrutiny of the other apostles. Uh, Paul, we read, did not return to Jerusalem after meeting with Cephas and James, the brother of Jesus, for some time since since last week. Um, Paul says that uh, he's recounting these events. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, whether this was 14 years from when Paul initially met with Peter and James, or whether he's speaking collectively of the time since uh, when he was first converted, when he first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it's hard to say. Either way, Paul, it's clear, had been ministering as an apostle for some time before he went up to meet with these other apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, He made this trip with one of my favorite members of the early church, Barnabas, who was well known among the apostles, was instrumental in advocating for Paul's acceptance into the church when he was first saved, and had been called uh, with Paul to be a missionary to the nations, and then was known throughout the church as an encourager. Paul also took with him a man by the name of Titus, someone whom we're familiar because we, uh, last year we were going through the book of Titus. Uh, Titus uh, served uh, as a pastor uh, both in Crete and in Corinth, and he was one of Paul's most trusted allies. Now, Paul and Barnabas may have had a list of reasons for bringing Titus along with them, but one of those reasons certainly had to do with the ongoing discussion that was going on in Jerusalem regarding the gospel and how it affected non-Jews, a.k.a. Gentiles. Now, one of the key doctrines that had to get worked out in the early church had to do with the expansion of God's people to include people outside of the physical line of Israel. Whereas before... God's people had national boundaries. With the work of Jesus, God expanded that tent, so to speak, to include people who were not physically descended from Israel. Uh, to, To the praise of his power in Christ, 
God has called a remnant of people to himself, not just from Israel, but from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Jesus has fulfilled all of God's covenant promises that have been laid out throughout salvation history. And he established a new and better covenant through his blood, a covenant of salvation through the merit of his work and the rule of his throne, which we are joined to now through faith in him. Now this, this is summed up by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians when he says to them, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you were Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That doctrine has not always been so clear to the church, especially the early church. And it's a major issue that shows up time and time again in the book of Acts. As we will go on to see through our time in Galatians, uh, this was the major issue that was going on with the churches there, which had caused Paul to write this letter in the first place. Most of the Jewish Christians were happy to see the gospel going out into the world. But there was not total agreement within the church at large as to how Gentiles became part of the people of God. There were some who were, who were happy to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but they argued that his sacrifice was only enough to atone for sin, and therefore if, if you were going to be at peace with God as one of his people, you had to keep the law of Moses. And in other words, you had to become Jewish and put yourself under the rule of the Mosaic law. Now, Paul and Barnabas, we've seen, argued fiercely against this position. And that's the false gospel that Paul refers to there in Galatians 1, verses 6 or 7. And in Acts 15, Luke tells us how the council of elders and the apostles at Jerusalem likewise affirmed what they taught. Now, there are some who think that the meeting Paul is talking about here in Galatians 2 is referring to that trip that, that Paul made in, in Acts 15. But I think it's more likely that when Paul refers to this meeting that he and Barnabas had with, with these three uh, important apostles, he's actually referring to a, a trip that he made previous to that, um, which is recorded for us in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, which you are welcome to read about and can gain a little bit of insight there. Uh, one of the reasons I think that's the case is because of the occasion of Paul and Barnabas' visit to Jerusalem. In verse 2 here in, Galatia, in, in Galatians 2, verse 2, he says that he went up because of a revelation, which is probably referring to the word of the Lord that came from Agabus, about an upcoming famine which had led the church in Antioch to send money with Paul and Barnabas to relieve their brothers and sisters who were living there in Judea. Uh, that fits the private nature of Paul's visit with these other apostles, and it fits verse 10 where they urge him to remember the poor, which Paul says is the very thing he was eager to do. So if that's the case, assuming that's the case, then Paul Barnabas and Titus had come for the express purpose of bringing this gift from the church in Antioch, which was, would have contained quite a few Gentiles, uh, to the churches that were in Judea. But while they were there, Paul and Barnabas were also eager to share with the church in Jerusalem about what God was doing among the nations. 
They brought Titus along then to testify to the way God was working among the nations since we read that he himself was a Greek or a Gentile. Now the significance of this situation for Paul's letter to the Galatians is not difficult for us to see. The false teachers who were troubling the churches in Galatia were saying that Paul didn't preach the whole truth of the gospel, that he was a people pleaser who left out the law of Moses, which they argued was binding for all believers. They said that if a man wanted to be right with God, he needed Jesus' sacrifice for, their, for his sin, but he also needed to keep the law, including being circumcised if he wanted to be counted as one of God's people. Now, these teachers taught a gospel that, that was, a, it was a gospel of faith in Christ's sacrifice, but it was more than that. It was a gospel of faith plus works. And those works, we see, nullified the power of God's grace, which is why Paul found this false gospel so abominable. The gospel of works that these false teachers were preaching contradicted the gospel of grace that Paul had received from Jesus, which he then preached. In verse 2, he says that while he was in Jerusalem, he set this gospel, which he had been proclaiming, privately before those apostles who seemed particularly influential to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. He submitted himself to the test. Now, before we get to the way that James, Peter, and John responded to what Paul was preaching, I've got to say, it is surprising, isn't it, to hear Paul talking like this. Paul has adamantly said that the gospel he preached is God's gospel, that he received it directly from Jesus when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Nothing could shake Paul's confidence in that. Why didn't, did he feel it necessary to present this message to the apostles saying that it was to make sure he was not running or had not run in vain? That's, that's kind of puzzling. After all, Paul would have been preaching this message for well over a decade. Is he, are we to think that he's having second thoughts here? Well, no. Paul wasn't having second thoughts. He was, however, concerned with what... With, uh, he was concerned that the work he had done preaching this gospel of grace to the nations would be in vain if the Jewish Christians did not accept the legitimacy of the gospel work that was going on among the nations. One scholar observes that Paul's fear is not that his gospel will be voided of its power if the decision of Jerusalem should go against him. What he fears, rather, is that a negative verdict will create a fissure or a break in the church between its Jewish and Gentile wings. He says that the good news has power only as it fulfills the single plan of, God, of the biblical God who made promises to his people in the Old Testament. Cutting Gentiles off from the spiritual root that nourishes them would endanger their continuing experience of God's blessing and favor. And a split between the Jewish and Gentile Christians could lead, Paul fears, to just such a situation. So that is why Paul comes and, and presents this to these three apostles, these influential apostles, to see what their verdict will be. As Christ's servant, Paul wanted to see Jesus glorified as he reconciled Jew and Gentile, man and women, slave and free, all is one. All that we are is of grace. And the wall of division that used to exist has been broken through the fulfillment of the law in Jesus' obedience. Those who wanted the division to continue that were not opposing Paul so much as they were opposing Christ himself. Now the good news is that when these influential apostles met with Paul and they heard what he was preaching, 
And when they, they saw the fruit of how the Spirit of God was making the gospel effective among the Gentiles, they added nothing to Paul's message and what he had been preaching. In verse 3, Paul says that Titus, who was with him, was not pressured to receive circumcision by these apostles. And the leadership in Jerusalem was willing to accept him as a brother, not because he had some physical mark on his body, but because he had been marked with the new life of Christ uh, through his faith in him. Now, there are two things to notice about the way James, Peter, and John reacted to Paul's message. First, in verse 6, we see that Paul says they added nothing to Paul, meaning they did not change anything about his message, uh, which he was preaching and in which he was ministering among the Gentiles. They didn't change anything about the message he actually had brought to the Galatians. Paul was willing to submit himself and his message to the scrutiny of the other apostles, not because he was afraid he'd gotten it wrong, but because he was confident that the grace of God would prevail in the church. He was confident that the testing of his work would only reveal the truth of the gospel that had been entrusted to him. Paul may have received his calling and his message independently of these men, but he didn't think himself as above their scrutiny. When the unity of the church was on the line, he was willing to stand in the gap and to submit his work to the test. For the churches in Galatia, the fact that these pillar apostles in Jerusalem didn't change anything about what Paul said or about how he ministered or about who he ministered to, but only urged him on in the work, as we see in verses 9 through 10, is incredibly important. This is evidence in favor of the gospel of grace that Paul preached. And it is evidence against the gospel of works that was being preached by these false teachers in Galatia. It shows that the men who were trying to undermine Paul and the message um, that he had preached there were enemies of the church, not friends, since they were opposing not only Paul, but the most influential apostles in Jerusalem, James, Peter, and John. Now this outcome is significant for us as well because it teaches us the powerful lesson that while controversies come and go in the church, God will always preserve the church through this gospel of grace. It has been almost 2,000 years and in that time the church has faced all sorts of controversy, heresy, and disagreement. But time and time again, God has shown that whatever scheme Satan uses to, to tear at the seams of the flag of Christ and of his church, God always preserves his people. He always raises up men like Paul, Barnabas, Athanasius, Anselm, Augustine, Huss, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Tyndale, Spilsbury, Gill, Williams, Manley, Boyce, Spurgeon, and so many, many more to submit themselves, to be willing to be scrutinized for the sake of the gospel, to put their lives on the line for this truth. And the good news is that every time Jesus wins, his gospel of grace always stands, and God's purposes always prevail. The power of the throne of Christ is that great, and the grace of God is never upset, no matter what comes. The second thing we learn from this interaction is that, as I said in the main point, the grace of God must rule as the standard of all truth and discernment. Look at verse 7, after Paul says that these men added nothing to his message. He says, On the contrary, 
when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Now, the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles was something that took time for the apostles who were Jews to wrap their their heads around. It wasn't until Acts 10, when God saved the Roman centurion Cornelius and his household, that Peter said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. And it wasn't until Acts 11 that the church, in response to Peter's testimony, realized that God had, re- had granted repentance that leads to eternal life to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. When, when Paul laid out the gospel he had been preaching among the Gentiles to James, Peter, and John, they approved of what he was doing because they recognized that God had entrusted the same gospel uh, to him to minister among the nations that he had entrusted to Peter as he appointed him to minister among the Jews. They recognized a unity which was only possible on account of God's prevailing grace in Jesus. Paul's ministry was only different from Peter's in terms of where he served and who he served. It was the same good news. The message itself was the same. The reason these apostles were able to judge that that to be the case is because they recognized Paul's calling and because they perceived the grace that had been given to him and was at work in him. The grace of God was their standard. And the reason they ratified his message, the message that was being disputed and attacked by these false teachers in Galatia, was because of the grace factor that was in Paul's message and in Paul's life. The reason Paul's message held up under the scrutiny of these pillar apostles is because he preached a gospel of salvation by grace alone. The method of these apostles is important, and it sets an important precedent for the church today. There is no shortage of controversy in the church right now, especially here in the West. It's going to be very interesting to see what this summer holds as the Southern Baptist Convention meets together to discuss issues of prevalence. A lot of that impact, a lot of that has had to do with the impact of secularism on the church. Those, there are issues threatening in some respects to divide the church. Issues like... Uh, Issues like systemic racism, critical theory, and what the priority of the church should be right now regarding certain perceived injustices. There's a growing extremism on either side of the aisle, and it is astounding. It's concerning. It's, It's really rather uncomfortable. These are issues that the church cannot afford to ignore because whether or not you like them, they are here, and they are pressing, and they have to be spoken to. And in this time of growing division, the church cannot afford to deviate from the standard of judgment which guided the actions of the apostles. This is the standard of God's grace made manifest in the gospel. It is an all-encompassing message which informs us of the authority of God's rule, the depravity of man's sin, the saving work of Jesus Christ, and the response of faith and obedience to his rule. The gospel speaks into every corner of our lives. 
and the grace of God is the standard by which we must judge all things. Just as this was the guiding standard of the church as it dealt with the issue of circumcision, so it must stand for the church as we submit ourselves to Christ and to the truth of his world, his word. All we are all we are is living people of God's grace, and God's grace is expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it stands as the enduring standard by which we must judge all things. Now, Paul was willing to have himself scrutinized and his message scrutinized for the sake of the truth. He was also willing to stand his ground. Paul, as we see here, uh, is very careful about the way he talks about his meeting with James, Peter, and John. Uh, He has the precision of a tightrope walker here. He strikes a very careful balance between showing that they did indeed approve of the gospel he preached and of his ministry without going so far as to say that he was dependent on their approval, the way the false teachers in Galatia were trying to paint him out to be. Paul may have submitted himself to the scrutiny of these other apostles for the sake of the unity of of the church, But his commitment to this message was never dependent on them. If anything, their approval of what he was preaching confirmed that they themselves were not in error and had not been misguided by these false brothers who we see had managed to infiltrate the church in Jerusalem. In an effort to keep our focus on the authority of the gospel of grace, Paul doesn't name drop any of these apostles until he gets to verse 9. In verse 2, he simply refers to them as those who seemed influential. And then in verse 6, he uses this title again, though this time he says, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Without reading too much into Paul's intentions, I think that the reason Paul is so hesitant to drop any names here is because he didn't want any of the Galatians to accept his message as authentic or as authoritative because it bore the standard and the approval of Jerusalem. No, he wanted them to accept it by the standard of judgment that had led James, Peter, and John to give Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, the standard of God's grace and truth in the gospel, which he had received from Jesus and which they then had received from him. So Paul makes a very careful point to us about how believers should respect authority without venerating those who wield it. The authority of the church is not in the discretion of men and women but in the standard of the gospel of God's grace. It is misguided to devote ourselves to any authority that that does not conform to that standard. Now, the Catholic Church is well known for appealing to its succession of leadership going all the way back to Peter. That's where they claim that they have authority to speak. But we see here that the authority of Peter is nothing compared to the authority of Christ, and it is nothing compared to the authority of the gospel of grace. Paul teaches us that the gospel is bigger than the office of apostleship. It is bigger than the office of elder. It is bigger than the office of pastor or teacher or deacon or anything. And so, when false brothers who had snuck into the church tried to put pressure on Paul and on Barnabas to abandon this gospel of grace, Paul says, we did not yield to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 through 15, Paul reasons that it is no surprise that the servants of Satan disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, since Satan himself will disguise himself as an angel of light 
to deceive people and to lead them away from the truth of the gospel of grace. Apparently, there were such people in the early church who claimed that they followed Christ. They claimed to be followers of him. But in reality, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. In verse 4, Paul says that there were false brothers in the church in Jerusalem who had slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ with the purpose of leading people back into enslavement under the law. Whether these men came into the actual meeting that Paul was having with James, Peter, and John, or whether they created a stir after the fact, uh, we can judge from the context that these men obviously wanted Titus to be circumcised since they held to a false gospel of works, not a gospel of grace. And they argued that Titus, if he was really a follower of Christ, would submit himself to the Mosaic law. Paul and Barnabas resisted these men. And true to the standard of grace, James, Peter, and John, we see likewise, did not cave to the pressure that was most certainly being put on them by these men. As I read about how Paul and Barnabas stood their ground against these false brothers, I'm impressed by what he says there in verse 5, where he says, We did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Key key in on those last few words. We did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Galatians, for you, Grace Baptist Church. Paul went to war against these false brothers to preserve the truth of the gospel, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. For the Galatians... And for us, it matters that Paul went to war on this, that he stood his ground, because there is no other gospel by which people can be saved. Paul may have submitted his ministry and his message to the scrutiny of these other men, but the truth is that James, Peter, and John really proved themselves to be authentic in their devotion to Christ because they accepted his message and added nothing to it. The gospel of grace is our standard. And as followers of Christ, we must stand fast on it, just as Paul did. We can call ourselves what we want, but the test of true allegiance for God's people is the gospel of God's grace. Which brings us now to consider our third point and how Paul was sent out to continue the work. Now the apostles that met with Paul, Barnabas, and Titus met them with enthusiasm for the work that God was doing in and through them among the Gentiles. Their enthusiasm was driven by the presence of God's grace in Paul's ministry and in the message he preached to the nations. In verse 9, Paul says that when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, if you know me, you know that I am a hand shaker. And one of the hardest things about COVID-19 is not shaking people's hands. I have always been that way. To me, a handshake is a way of showing respect and care and love. So the first thing I do when I meet someone for the first time or when I see someone I haven't seen in a while is I want to shake their hand. And the last thing I want to do before I say goodbye to them is to shake their hand, especially if that's a person who I don't know if I'll ever see them again. It means a lot to me to shake someone's hand. Some of the hardest and happiest moments in my life have been the handshakes I've given to brothers and sisters who I won't ever see again in this life because they went out for the sake of King Jesus 
to serve as ambassadors of, of Jesus Christ in hard places, proclaiming this message of grace, the same message that Paul and Barnabas preached. When James and Peter and John shook Paul and Barnabas' hands, they didn't know if they'd ever see them again. But they were bound together with a, with a bond of brotherhood that led them to extend that hand of fellowship. This is a big moment in the church because it shows the unity of the message even as they go out to different places. They had come together and they had left, but they knew they would be together once again when they joined in fellowship in heaven. The reason these moments are precious is because even though they are bitter, because we take our leave from each other expecting not to see each other again in this life, there's a joy that is shared in one hope under one king in one gospel of grace. The grace of God in the gospel is the standard by which we judge all things. It's also the, the grace that unites God's people everywhere in one faith. So this handshake between Paul, Barnabas, and these other influential apostles was an important moment, really in the life of the church, and in their lives for sure, but definitely in the life of the church. And I want to finish this morning by just keying in on three important features we can learn from this handshake of fellowship. First, this handshake signified the unity of their message and their mission under one Lord. In verse 7, Paul says that not only did these brothers not add or take away in any fashion from the message he preached, but that they recognized he had been entrusted to the gospel and had been sent out to be a minister to the Gentiles the same way that Peter had been entrusted. Um, he explains there in verse 8, he says, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So there's a unity here. Peter and Paul served one master. They, they considered themselves to be servants of one king. They preached one message, and they did so because of the grace of God, which is the standard we've seen of, by which all ministry is judged. The book of Acts is, as you read it, I'm glad to hear that the ladies are going through it, the book of Acts is the historical record of how God worked in and through the early church to spread the message of grace throughout the world. When Jesus commissioned his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, he proclaimed that he had been given all authority in heaven and on earth and that he sent his church out in that power to all the earth to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he commissioned them to teach all that he had commanded them. Peter and Paul may have served in different places, but they served one master, and they preached one message, the message of God's grace. When Paul tells the Galatians about the way that James, Peter, and John gave them the right hand of fellowship, he didn't do it to try to build up his own reputation. I mean, who wouldn't boast about, I mean, sometimes people, they, they shake a celebrity's hand, and they're like, I'll never wash that hand again. That's Peter right there. And they shake their hand. They didn't want them to, they're not trying to build up their own reputation. Rather, Paul is trying to emphasize to them that there was one message of hope that there was only one gospel that Jesus had commissioned his apostles to preach, and that was the message of grace they had received from him. Now, the second thing we see about this handshake is that even though these brothers recognized the unity of their message and the unity of their mission with it, they also recognized that God had uh, called them to serve in different places. 
They were unified under the same master. They preached the same message. But God had called them to go to different people. In verse 9, Paul says that they gave the right hand of fellowship to them, and that as they did, uh, that they should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So in his wisdom, we see that God calls and commissions us to serve and to minister under one message, with one priority, in all sorts of unique ways, but all of this as a result of his grace. The grace of God made Peter what he was. The grace of God made Paul what he was. And the grace of God is what makes you what you are. So do not think less of the place where God has called you to serve. Do not think more of yourself to think that somehow you deserve more, uh, a more prominent station or that you deserve uh, to be put in a more prominent place. Last week we, we talked about the glory that is to be found in anonymity. That glory is there because of God's grace. And wherever God has designed to use us for the glory of his son, whatever capacity of service he has appointed for us, we must understand that it is all of grace. And therefore, it is all glorious. We can recognize this by following the example of the apostles who, when they saw the grace of God that was at work in their fellow brothers, Paul and Barnabas, they rejoiced and they encouraged them to keep going. We can glory too much in the ministry that God has called us to. And if we can do that by forgetting that all we are is of grace, we can also do that by looking down on the place God has called us to. We can also do that by looking down on others and thinking less of them because they don't serve the way that we do. I was, uh, some of you may have seen the news about Ravi Zacharias and the scandal, the sexual scandal that's come out. Um, the past few years, the church has seen quite a few well-known pastors and titans of the faith fall hard. And um, there's a certain manner in which I think every pastor and minister, every person is drawn to how popu- the popularity of a certain teacher. Uh, I myself have benefited so much from Ravi Zacharias and from his ministry. And I grieve this obvious and blatant and terrible sin. It's a warning, I think, and it's something I was talking to Ellie about, that I'm thankful for the unknown pastors and teachers in my life who have lived faithful lives and preached a faithful gospel. I'm thankful that God has, has set them up. And I wouldn't have had that if they'd been elevated to that other place. We talk about the importance of the local church here. There's a reason why God didn't give YouTube to you to be the sanctifying force in your life. He gave the local church. He gave you pastors and teachers who love you and who are involved in your life and who preach and teach because out of a, out of a love for truth, but out of a desire to see that truth lived out in your lives. So this is an appeal to you to pray for me as I try to care for you and shepherd you that I would not fall. Because if it can happen to Ravi Zacharias, it can happen to me. But also here's a commission to you to press into this church, to press into the means of grace God's put in your life and to say, God, we may be 50, but this is your grace 
it is precious. So I want to encourage you with that. The last thing we want to see about this handshake. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, and then they said something to them. They urged Paul and Barnabas to remember the poor. Remember the poor. Don't let that detail go by the wayside. In our world, there are churches that make social activism the sum of what they see the church being called to do. To them, the church's mission is to relieve the world of its suffering. That is a noble task, but it is not the full task. They emphasize Christ's compassion and his love, but they often leave out or completely deny the priority of his atoning work on the cross. On the other hand, you have churches who are stoutly committed to the purity of doctrine. They stand fast on the truth. They are quick with a word, but they show little love to their neighbors. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. When we read about how James, Peter, and John urged Paul and Barnabas to remember and care for the poor, we realize that the gospel is about much more than just social outreach and alleviating suffering, but it's certainly not less than that. The gospel of God's grace produces an urgency within God's people to see all the marks of suffering and sin that mar the landscape of the world erased. We long to see the rule of King Jesus exalted, and there is no suffering in his kingdom. That means we want to see fundamentally that people are rescued from their sins, and that when we see them wallowing in the brokenness of the world, we can't stand it. And so we act when it is in our power to do so. If God puts it within our power to care for the suffering of those who are around us, we must do it. Because that's what the gospel does. That's what God's grace has done to us, and that's what it must flow from us to others. When the gospel of God's grace takes root in our lives, it will bear fruit of love towards one another. Whoever loves his brother, John writes, abides in the light, lives in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, James says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Paul says he was eager to remember the poor. If we understand that this meeting is the same one that Luke tells us about in Acts 11, which I think it is, then the whole reason Paul and Barnabas came to, was, came to Jerusalem was to bring an offering from the church in Antioch to help care for poor brothers and sisters in Judea who were feeling this harsh famine. It is good for us then, I think, in light of the grace of God at work, the rule of grace, the standard of grace that we've seen this morning, it is good for us to to evaluate our own lives, to put ourselves to the test, to ask ourselves, how are we using the time, the money, and the resources God has given to us, and to think critically about how we can better care for those needs uh, which are in our community and which are in our church. If the grace of God has taken hold of us the way it took hold of Paul, then we too should be eager to remember the poor and of those who are in need and to care for the broken, all out of the love and all out of the care that we ourselves have received from God through Christ. So this stands for the church. The rule of everything we do as Grace Baptist Church is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. May God give us the power and the wisdom to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are here.
this morning seeking to exalt you. Lord, the, the, the sacrifices of praise we bring to you will mean very little in your sight if they are not matched with hearts of praise, hearts that have been touched by your grace, hearts that have been established in the love of Jesus. Your love never fails, God. And we pray that in your love, you would do a work in us to purge from us all things that are not worthy of Christ, that you would give us eyes to see uh, the dross that's still in us, that it would be, it would be uh, wiped out, so that we would preach and live out a pure gospel, a gospel of grace, a gospel of truth, a gospel of righteousness, a gospel of hope. And we pray, Father, that as we live, as we speak, that the gospel would be preserved and that it would be well represented to those who are around us. Father, we pray urgently that we would be an instrument of peace and righteousness and grace in this lost world. And we ask that you would equip us and mobilize us and help us to take ownership of the mission that you have given to us, that we would live with an urgency, and that we would do all things for Christ the King. And I pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.